This week on WealthTrack, leading global value manager Chuck Delardamel says it's time to hedge stock portfolios and to do it in something other than cash. He is next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. We watch big financial trends for you on WealthTrack, which affect the investment climate and obviously your portfolio. One was analyzed recently in a second quarter quarterly letter to clients from Ben Inker, the head of asset allocation at GMO. Inker, a past WealthTrack guest, has worked for years alongside noted market strategist Jeremy Grantham. The letter was titled, Bigger's Been Better. In this case, bigger refers to the 50 largest U.S. companies by stock market value called megacaps. The better refers to their record-making earnings and stock performance. As Inker wrote, U.S. stocks have profoundly outperformed stocks in the rest of the world, whether other developed markets or emerging markets. And the largest driver of the outperformance has been the massive superiority of earnings growth in the U.S. relative to anywhere else. And the improvement in profitability has occurred only in the largest companies. The top 50 mega cap companies, to be exact. The tech names that you all know, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, Facebook, and the more traditional business powerhouses, Berkshire Hathaway, Visa, J.P. Morgan Chase, Johnson & Johnson, Walmart, etc., GMO calculated that their profit value added, meaning their gross profit, that's revenues less the cost of goods sold, has increased by 62%, whereas the profitability of the next 450 companies improved by 37%, and the next 2,500 only 5%. Now, the other big issue is their stock market dominance. For the first time in history, assets in passive equity funds and ETFs based in the U.S., have surpassed assets in actively managed mutual funds. It happened this summer. These megastocks dominate index funds. How they go, so goes the major market indices. The logical question is, how risky does their clout make the U.S. market? Well, this week's guest is known for assiduously avoiding market risk. He is global value manager Charles Chuck Delardamel, a founding partner of International Value Advisors, known as IVA, which he and his partner launched in the depths of the financial crisis in 2008. Delardamel is co-portfolio manager of their two mutual funds, IVA Worldwide and IVA International. Although both funds lag their benchmarks in bull markets, they protect in declines and have thus earned Morningstar's silver medalist analyst rating for their cautious, patient strategy, making them a valid long-term choice for wary investors. IVA describes its strategy as winning by not losing and looking to assess risk and try to avoid it wherever possible. I asked Alardamel where he is seeing risk in the world that he is avoiding. Well, I think uh, usually a risk is associated with too much credit growth. And there are a number of, uh, a number of areas where we see a lot of credit growth. One is corporate America, mm-hmm. especially in the high yield bond market, uh, driven by buybacks and so on and so forth. And that usually leads to issues down the road. Mm-hmm. There, is, there has been too much credit growth in China for a number of years now. And we are not sure when that issue might come to the fore, but eventually it will. And the third one is more difficult um, to assess, but I think in Europe, you still have issues with banks and especially the idea that government bonds are risk-free, which we think is a a lie in Europe because Italy or Spain or France cannot print 
euros. And so we think there is a risk there that is substantial because it's a risk that would bankrupt the banking system in Europe. And that's what moves a recession into a depression. Would you ever get involved in a company or a country that does have a fair amount of debt to Sometimes GDP we do. in their balance sheet or? Look, uh, value investing starts with price. Right. And sometimes the price or the price is discounted enough of the risk that you're willing to get involved. Uh, you have to think when you invest internationally as well, you have to think about the currency. And mm -hmm. sometimes the crisis ends up with currencies uh, devaluing substantially, but you may have companies that are listed in a country that do business in a different country. So, for instance, uh, we own Antofagasta, which is a copper miner that's listed in the UK. There's no Brexit risk there. You mm -hmm. know, Antofagasta is copper, it's a US-driven business. So that's an example where, you know, uh, you have a market that is at risk with Brexit, but the security itself Right, uh, not it's, so, it's fine. Right. Your sovereign debt exposure is zilch, right, right, right in the right. worldwide fund. And All our, right. our okay. cash is commercial paper. It's right. not sovereign debt. Oh, so it's not treasuries. You're no. not. No, oh. no, no, no. Oh, oh, we so pick our own commercial paper. Oh, so we get a bit more than than uh, treasury bills. Well, how do you feel about the creditworthiness of the United States government? Oh, on a relative basis. It's very strong. Mm -hmm. Relative <laughs> to any other country. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Relative to Japan or relative to Europe, right. I think it's very strong. One of the reasons why it's so strong is that you've had tremendous value creation in California, in, in the U.S. in general, mm -hmm. with technology companies, whether with software in the 80s and 90s or now with the Internet-related companies. And that wealth allows the U.S. government to tax. Right. And that's why the credit of the U.S. is well-supported by asset values and wealth creation. In Europe, you have not had that same phenomenon. And mm -hmm. so you may have uh, substantial amounts of debt, but on top of that, they have not been able to grow the economy as much as in the US. So uh, there is more risk there, like right. we, we believe, than, than in the US. So, so your, your cash position, when I looked at it last, and of course it's going to change, in a, I'm, I'm looking pretty much at sure. the IBA Worldwide right. Fund, yep. um, is what, around 30%, is that right? Yeah, it's cash, come down a little bit, right. and we've, we've added to gold All right. instead. So tell me about how you view cash, because you said something interesting to me on the phone where you didn't think it was as effective a hedge as it once was. Uh, longer term, right. we think that the central bankers are very keen on debasing currency. And therefore, gold may be a more appropriate hedge today mm -hmm. than cash in the long run. In the short term, cash will work to obviously um, um, uh, provide an optionality in terms right. of dry powder to be able to buy cheaper securities if they ever show up. Mm -hmm. But over the long term, I'd rather, you know, you know how Buffett says, oh, the perfect portfolio is 90% S&P 500 and 10% cash. And I think I would argue with him that that it may be 90% S&P and 10% gold mm -hmm. other than cash. He would not agree with you yet on that particular <laughs> point. But so, so explain to me, um, so when people look, I, I was look, reading the Morningstar report, sure. of yeah. course, about yeah. the Worldwide Fund, right. and one of the things that it said is that because you always want to buy securities at a very deep discount, and the reason that the cash levels are so high and that they vary is, um, is that you're not finding the kind of, uh, values, correct. Um, as many values as you would, and therefore that would explain the higher cash that is positions. Yes, you, and right. You sh you should know that we're trying to manage the worldwide fund as a family trust. Basically, mm -hmm. we don't we don't care about short term uh, 
um, movements versus in indices, for instance, but over you know three, five, ten years, mm -hmm. we'd like to compound uh, nicely, and we want to avoid losses as much as possible, impairment of capital right. as much as possible. And in today's environment, where interest rates are so low, that has pushed asset values very substantially. Mm -hmm. The expansion, at least in the U.S., has been uh, tremendous and long, very long by historical standards. Right. And right. yes, and so we are getting concerned that we're getting closer and closer to a recession, and we believe that as that risk has gone up substantially over the last three months. Mm -hmm. And and do you have a sense of when a recession? I mean, you're not forecasters, but right? You know, given given where the data is, my best guess would be six months to a year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you need to get prepared now because markets tend to anticipate. Right. And, you know, they fall before a recession is even declared, so. Looking at the U.S., so I'm, I, I was looking again at, at what your position is in the U.S. market, and it was um, as far as a percentage of your portfolio. Yes, 30% of our equity exposure is in the U.S. 30% of equity. And, yes, okay. that is right. correct, yes. Right. And that's low by historical standards. We're finding more value outside the U.S. than we are in the U.S. at this point. Right. Um, and so. So the last for the last ten years since the actually since you started the uh, IVA, right. which was you started in October of two thousand and eight, right? That is correct. Yeah, um, and the U.S. has been the place to invest, yep. and and especially uh, the U.S. mega caps. Right. It turns out driven by technology. Yes. Right. So have you participated in that in the last decade? Or we wish we had participated more. more. But yes, we we still yeah. own Google. We own Mastercard. Uh, Apple at one point you owned it. We we do. we sold puts. It was a weird way to build an entry point into Apple. But yes, we got exposed to Apple at some point. That is right. correct. We own Microsoft at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, we still own Oracle. Mm -hmm. So we've been able, as value investors, despite the fact that we're value investors, we've been able to understand the the software models right. uh, and some of the more stable, more um, uh, mature technology. Uh, but software is a fairly straightforward business model mm -hmm. to understand, mm -hmm. and we've been able to participate over the years. Not, right. Maybe not as much as we would have liked, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Now, outside the U.S., there are plenty of companies, there are global companies as well, and may, you know, given the composition of their revenues and profitability, you wouldn't be surprised to find them in the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. But because they're listed in France or other countries, they tend to sell at, at, at some discount, and sometimes that's not, that's not warranted. Right. So Nestle is, a, is an example of a. So such what a, is an example? Nestle, Nestle? No, Nestle is, a, is sure. an example of such a company we've owned uh, for years and years and years. Right, but you told me I think that Nestle's um, it, it is kind of near the end of its run. So we see today a very sharp contrast between stable, large, non-cyclical companies that are trading at higher and higher multiples. Because people consider them to be defensive and they've got great dividends and they buy back their stock, all those things. And interest rates are very low. And interest rates, all right. And so all of that has pushed them up, up, and up. Right. Meanwhile, you've had cyclicals and some cyclicals of high quality, such as BMW or Samsung that mm -hmm. we own, that have been pushed down, down, and down. And in both cases, Samsung and BMW, they actually sell on a price-to-book basis, below where they were selling in 2009. Wow. In the case of BMW, for sure. Mm -hmm. The case of Samsung, similar levels. Right. And that shows you the, the depth of the undervaluation, we believe, of these more mm -hmm. cyclical companies. Mm -hmm. And the contrast with the non-cyclical, high-quality companies is now 
not only sharp, but at very extreme levels. Mm -hmm. And we think that at some point that will snap back. So as you said earlier, price matters a lot. Yes. So even though you're talking about a possible recession in the U.S., mm-hmm. and certainly things are not better, any better overseas. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if anything, the economy is, mm-hmm. economies are slowing earlier Correct. and faster. Right. Um, then cyclicals, you would say, that's a counter. That's kind of a, it's very counterintuitive. Right. Yes. Everybody anticipates a recession so much right. that nobody wants to touch the cyclicals no. anymore. And there are a few of quality that we think are overly discounted. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the proper hedge against that is to own some gold, mm-hmm. which historically goes up uh, in, in recessions. Right. So the, the gold piece is very interesting right. to me. And I, yes. We have 10% okay. of the worldwide fund uh, in gold bullion, and we have 13%, one three, uh, in gold bullion in the international fund. Ah. Uh, the miners... So is that is that a pretty high level for yes, you? Yes, that's historically? a high level for us historically. Do you have a cap, but, you know, psychologically or financially on that? or? Mm-hmm. We're probably nearing the cap. Right. The reason why we have so much is that we also have more cyclicals uh, than in the past. And I think I so see. you need more entrance, basically, right. against uh, a, a sharper than expected recession or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we believe that uh, in, a, in a recession, central bankers will manipulate interest rates again. Mm-hmm. And usually when real interest rates go down, goals, gold shoots up. Now, the reason is that gold is money. It's Mm -hmm. a currency. You and I can go to Iran, Japan, Russia. Mm -hmm. Gold will be accepted uh, anywhere Mm -hmm. to to trade against the local currency and then buy shelter, food, whatever you need. And so when real interest rates contract, gold goes up. And Mm -hmm. we think that the uh, central bankers, again, are bent on debasing currency to offset the load of of debt that exists in developed economies and that they will continue to do so. Now, historically... It's not easy to value gold, right? It's, no, it's, no, I was going to say, right. just, I'm just trying to think of the so uh, it's, it's, it's liquid, it's expensive to hold. It's, I mean, it's, it's not it, that expensive to hold. Right. I mean, it's, it, you it, know, for, for, it, for instance, for, for insurance ETFs companies in, in, mm-hmm. in, in Europe or for banks now, they have to, to pay to park money at, at the central yes, bank. Yes, that's true. Or even Negative in bonds. Rates. You know, I think the 10-year bond in Swiss francs is minus 1%. Right. So you have to pay a, a, a large amount. The point being that so the, the storing of gold uh, is a lot less expensive mm-hmm. than the storing of cash mm-hmm. or than the negative rates you get on, on, uh, on bonds uh, around the world today, except for the U.S. So at IBA, how do you view the, this phenomenon of negative interest rates? It, I, we, we think it's, creating, it's likely to be creating bubbles somewhere. Right. Uh, and, you know, the, the one is in government debt, mm-hmm. one is in corporate debt, and the third is in China, we think. But we don't know how, what the end game is. I don't think anybody does. Mm-hmm. We've been very surprised how long Japan has been able to right. continue on in, and, in a situation I mean, like this. Kind of, and thrive, really. Yeah. I mean, right. the economy's sure. not collapsing. Correct. And, right. and so. the GDP per capita has gone up substantially in Japan, partly because the population is... Is, is shrinking now, right. but it's lasted for a long time, and we're not sure when it ends, but we think it's going to be ugly. In the meantime, um, owning some gold as an offset against your equity position, I think, makes a lot of sense, given uh, how advanced the uh, cycle is mm-hmm. and, um, and what gold ten- tends to do in, in difficult markets. And we think it's, you know, if you were to look at gold to GDP, which is a uh, 
uh, a proxy for uh, gold versus net worth. Mm -hmm. Net worth is a multiple of GDP. If you look at that, in September of 2011, uh, gold, uh, ever mind, mark to market versus GDP, went to 15%, one mm -hmm. This is of global GDP. Yes, of global the GDP. The value of gold was Correct. 15% of global If we GDP. were to go back to those, these levels in a recession, which we believe is, is likely, in a recession, mm -hmm. uh, gold would be over $2,000 an ounce versus mm -hmm. about 1500 today. So mm -hmm. that would help offset right. some of your losses in equities. This is absolutely fascinating, Chuck. It really is. But let's go back, go back to stocks. Sure, yes. <laughs> kind of your, yes. That's, right. that's your stock right. and trade, right. Right. <laughs> really. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you finding values in, in stocks, in the stock market? We are trying to focus, as we always do, on quality companies, right? And try, we're trying more and more to find uh, less cyclical companies that are trading at reasonable multiples. Mm -hmm. And you have a few in the U.S. that are popping up, either because because they are misunderstood, misclassified. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of one of them, for instance, is LKQ, mm -hmm. uh, a company that provides parts to uh, repair shops mm -hmm. for auto collisions. And because it's linked to the car market. The stock, right. you know, trades at 11 times EBIT or so, but it's absolutely not, not cyclical. No, because uh, the accidents happen and people have to replace right. car parts. That's right. right. And they have, you, it, obviously, it's a big procurement operation because you can imagine the number of parts you need. Mm -hmm. All or most insurance companies, except the State Farm, use LKQ because they provide cheaper parts either out of Taiwan or by salvaging cars and getting you know, spare parts from those cars that have been wrecked. Mm -hmm. And so you get your parts for less money, you have to get them very quickly because insurance companies don't like to pay for that rental car that right. they're using while the car is in the repair shop. So they have a dominant market share in the US, very steady business. The number of collisions was slowly going down thanks to technology. It's gone back up because of uh, texting and driving. Mm -hmm. We hope that obviously that reverses uh, right. the state but of in the humanity, meantime. but in the meantime, <laughs> it's, been helping, it's been helping LKQ a little bit. So right. it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a mature business, but it's a very nice cash cow. Right. I think a Buffett type of business, really. Uh, you know, and it's mm -hmm. not huge, so is it part of ETFs or not? I'm not sure. But with certain, I, you know, when I look at LKQ, would I put it in a trust for my kids mm -hmm. and forget about it for 10, 15 years? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. At these prices, yes, I would. But uh, you also own Berkshire. Obviously, yes. we've talked about so, that on yes. the show before. Yes. But your view of Berkshire, and, and again, uh, in an, on another program, I had talked about you know the fact after the and one of the annual meetings that basically both, I guess, Charlie Munger said. You know that it's it's not we're not going to really be able to outperform the S and P, or we might be able to outperform it a little bit better. So it's kind of like an index fund is the way that he was kind of downplaying Correct. it. Correct, absolutely. And what is your view? Yes, of my view is is probably that, that that assessment is probably accurate. Right. But when you look, I look at two things. One, where are we in the cycle? Do I want to own levered companies in the in, mm -hmm. in this point of the cycle? And the answer is no. No. So they have 120 billion cash. They have the insurance business that is not, it's not the same cycle as the economic cycle. Mm -hmm. And then yes, they are exposed through manufacturing companies to the cycle. But by and large, within the S&P 500, this is, in my opinion, an extremely defensive company, one. Second, we see a discount to intrinsic to the order of 20, 25%, mm -hmm. which ah. for a company of that magnitude, that large, uh, is actually uh, uh, higher than what we see in, in, in uh, other listed companies in the S&P 500 in general. So right. there is a nice discount. We know they are un unlikely to make a major mistake in mm -hmm. capital allocation. The last point is, 
if we do get into a bear market at some point, mm -hmm. it's one of these rare companies where the, the intrinsic value can actually grow because they can uh, put the money to work right. uh, into equities that may be discounted, buy a few businesses that may be uh, on the block for a cheap price. Last mm -hmm. time he bought Bur uh, oh. Burlington Northern, which has been a, a home run for Berkshire Hathaway. Right. So you have a sort of that option, you know, that I really like uh, of, of, uh, of Berkshire being able to grow its intrinsic because of a, a recession, and that's very unique. Right. And so given where we are in the cycle, I think it makes a ton of sense. And so I would, I would argue over the next five years, they are likely to outperform the S&P 500. Oh. The, because we would, I would, uh, I think the odds of a recession within the next five years are quite high. Right. And as, as far as technology is concerned, yes. so what, what, are you seeing any values that are intriguing to you in we, the technology sector that have wealth creating potential? We, we own Oracle, for instance. Right. And it's a, you know, a sizable position for right. us. And we think it's one of those companies that, are, that is um, non-cyclical. You know, so much of, of it is recurring uh, mm -hmm. fees on, on established systems that right. you really can't rip off. And when I look at the multiples of an Oracle mm -hmm. versus the multiples of a Nestle, mm -hmm. Oracle seems to seems to be uh, appears to be much cheaper. Right. Oh, that's uh, interesting. You know, Oracle you're paying maybe about 13 times EBIT, mm -hmm. and Nestle is about 22 times today. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And so that's one example of a of a company that we believe is just very mildly cyclical, mm -hmm. and that may have not have been recognized as such by the market. Um, you know, we ask. Uh, every guest for one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. And, and you mentioned one already that you would put your, your kids, you know, in, in, into your kids' portfolio. But is, is there one that we should all own in a long-term diversified oh, I portfolio? Think, I think at this point in the cycle and for the long-term Berkshire is, is the obvious answer at this point. Having 5 to 10% in gold as a percentage of right. your equities also is necessary, I believe, at this point. As a, as a value investor, when you, when you look at, we've had this you know, record-long economic recovery, we've had a record-long bull market, and many, uh, most investors in the U.S. are invested in U.S. stocks, and they've done quite well because of that. Correct. Um, but how risky do you think the U.S. market is now? This is for American investors. I think part of the answer is a political answer. Part of the last leg of the bull market in the U.S. was driven by lower taxes for corporates. Right. And we have a large budget deficit today, despite having very, very low unemployment. And so how markets and the Treasury market reacts to very uh, substantial uh, budget deficits in a downturn remains to be seen. And I think there is a large amount of risk there. It may be that the Fed decides to just print dollars or, you know, buy treasuries, and that would just devalue the dollar. If the dollar devalues substantially, usually uh, uh, global markets uh, or international markets do, do, do better mm -hmm. relative to the U.S. That's mm -hmm. usually when the dollar is very weak. And in a recession, usually the dollar is weak because, you, you know, interest rates get lowered. Right. So I think there is a, there is a risk there that, that uh, people tend to forget about because interest rates on treasuries are so low. We don't know how you know what is too much in terms of budget deficit. So you know there is a question mark there. Chuck Delormel, thank you so much for joining us. On thank the you, Francois. I, I really pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. 
This week's action point is one we have recommended before, but there is even more compelling evidence to support the case for owning gold. This week's action point is own some gold as a hedge against market, economic, and currency declines. Gold has protected investors during every bear market but one over the last 50 years. And that was in the early 1980s when the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates dramatically and successfully to fight inflation. Otherwise, anytime markets were in a bear market, gold prices were rising. World economies are slowing, central banks are stimulating, pushing interest rates and thus their currencies even lower, and corporate and government debt is at record levels. What will hold its store of value and is recognized and traded around the world? Gold. Delarta Mel is holding more than 10% of his portfolios in gold bullion. Most individuals don't own any. This is a good time to consider it. Next week, the case for small company value stocks with small cap pioneer Chuck Royce. Why they deserve your attention now. This week in our extra feature, Chuck Delarta Mel explains the importance of being able to change your mind as an investor. He'll share some examples on our website, wealthtrack.com. We want to thank you for your feedback and hope you will reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and check out our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.